getting the flu reduced your chances of getting a cold? Can you get a cold and the flu at the same time? In this episode, we answer these questions with Dr. Seema Nickbash, a research associate at the Centre for Virus Research who very generously offered to be the guinea pig for this new series. Hello and welcome to The Review, a new series for the Contagious Thinking podcast. I'm Elena Sagru and I'll be your host. In this series, we go over a recent publication with one of the authors involved. This is another way for us all to better understand new and upcoming research in virology. So today we're going to be talking about your recent paper in PNAS, which actually when I looked it up was first coming out today a month ago, exactly. (laughs) So in this paper, you and the other authors were looking at virus-virus interactions and how they impact the population dynamics of influenza and the common cold. So to start off, I thought it would be good to hear about why you decided to look into virus-virus interactions and why influenza and the common cold in particular. Well, um, so traditionally, I guess we as researchers, so like epidemiologists, biologists and clinicians tend to study pathogens as individual infectious agents. But of course, we all know that in reality, multiple pathogens co-circulate together in the community. And especially when they share a host niche, such as the respiratory tract, this can lead to uh, opportunities for interactions or they may need to interact in order to sustain their survivability um so this can be in a cooperative way or in a sort of competitive way so commonly studied examples would be when you're infected with flu it can enhance your risk of secondary infections with bacteria such as pneumococcus bacteria and so that's a well-known type of cooperative form of pathogen pathogen interaction but um, very little is known about viruses interacting among themselves and so a lot more was known about virus bacteria interactions and interactions among bacteria but relatively little um, as far as I'm aware probably across most disease or all disease systems virus virus interactions are not well understood and so respiratory infections are the most common cause of illness and infectious cause I should say of illness and mortality globally obviously an important public health um, burden and because respiratory infection respiratory viruses share a niche in the respiratory tract there is the opportunity for these interactions to take place and there are some reports sort of mostly observational studies and some clinical studies that have suggested the possibility of interactions between these viruses but there was very little strong evidence that these interactions are actually taking place and so we had the opportunity in collaboration with the Greater Glasgow and Clyde Health Board um, here in Scotland to perform a study that would allow us to really sort of more stringently interrogate the data to investigate whether there are interactions happening among respiratory viruses. That's really interesting. From reading the paper, it does seem like you had an amazing data set to work with, and it would be great to hear about um, what methods you used to investigate the questions you wanted to answer. Yep, so the key points about this data are that it covered multiple seasons, so from 2005 through to 2013. Um, It covered all of the 11 clinically relevant respiratory viruses that are routinely tested for, and the important thing that is that in this particular NHS health board, 
all patients over the time frame of this study were tested by um, with a for a panel of viruses known as a multiplex PCR test, which allowed for the simultaneous detection of um, the screening of all the possible underlying infectious viral infectious agents in those cases of respiratory illness. And that was something that was quite unique and novel. And that allowed us to approach this from a more unique angle in that we were able to look at investigating interactions at the population level. So investigating the sort of time series picture. So how many infections in each month over time of each virus and seeing whether they were correlated across groups of viruses but also at the host scale, we were able to analyse co-infections and that was because of the multiplex testing. So we were then able to also, at a finer scale, ask the question, if you're infected with one virus, does that alter the chance of detecting a co-infection with another virus? Could you sort of talk us through some of the information you gained from all the statistical analyses you did? So to um, give you a summary of the findings we find that there are negative interactions between flu viruses and non-flu respiratory viruses but cooperative forms of interactions among the cold the non-flu viruses which are typically responsible for the common cold so it means there's something different going on with flu it seems to be only involved in negative interference types of interactions And so that seems to be a really useful piece of information. And do you think, or could you sort of talk through what implications this information could have on um, public health and other things? Yep, so broadly speaking, understanding better the dynamics of infection is important so that we can forecast and predict what the patterns of infections are going to look like, um, particularly during uh, flu season, if we know that there's Um, or in our case, because we believe that the presence of flu is suppressing infections with the most common common cold virus, rhinovirus, during winter season. It means that if you have a season of low flu, it's possible that you have more infections with the cold virus, which, although it's typically mild, it can cause severe illness in the very young or in immunocompromised individuals, for example, depending on the strain of virus also and so it can have a significant sort of clinical burden in certain groups it's also a really important source of absenteeism from work and school and so it can potentially allow for preparedness in terms of knowing how many intensive care beds you might need in a hospital versus what the economic impact might be from people having to stay at home from work and school um There are also potential implications which are quite controversial in terms of uh, vaccination. So when we vaccinate, do we open up a niche to allow other pathogens to invade? And we're wanting to do more to investigate that further. So that was going to be my next question. What's next to that project? So I think that's one prong, but there must be potentially other areas that you'd want to look into. Yeah, so at the moment we're working on something not directly linked actually to the interactions but looking at the impact of the childhood influenza immunization program which was introduced here in the UK in the autumn of 2013 Um, so we're wanting to 
look at the potential impact of that or what the impact looks like it's been um, on the epidemiology of flu viruses, but also on non-flu viruses as well. Great. So now I think we can move on to a few questions about you. So it would be interesting to hear about how you got into this research area and what drew you to it. Okay, well, I um, I did a master's degree in veterinary epidemiology. Um, it was a, a brilliant course at the Royal Veterinary College conducted in uh, collaboration with the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. So we got um, to get a taste of epidemiology in terms of um, animal health application, but also human health. I then went on to do a PhD focusing on the epidemiology of avian flu in Great Britain. And so I guess I had a bit of a background already in uh, flu epidemiology, if you like. Um, but I, when working on avian flu, I was interested at that point in interactions between different types of avian flu viruses. So at the time, I was looking at low pathogenic avian flu and highly pathogenic forms of avian flu, and how they interact with one another to shape the epidemiology, in particular, um, how uh, the presence of low path viruses can alter the spread of high path viruses and so that set me up perfectly to then work in uh, Pablo's group on um, the epidemiology of these respiratory viruses. Sounds perfect Um, and are there any other projects that you'd like to work on in the future perhaps away from flu or? I'm yeah is the answer to the <laughs> short answer. I have a project also on the go investigating interactions um, for enteric viruses. So the ones that are responsible for sickness and diarrhea, so norovirus, rotavirus, those groups of viruses. So in a similar way, we believe that there's potential for interactions with these gut pathogens. And then in the long run, it will also be great to look at how the two niches, the gut and the respiratory tract, are also interlinked and how there might be interactions actually between those two niches. But as a first step, um, yeah, there's still a lot more work to be done on the respiratory viruses and enteric viruses is is another line of of inquiry that we're working on. Really interesting. So finally, there's two questions we always ask people during the podcast – this one can be tricky on the spot, but what is one piece of advice you would give to a PhD student or early career researcher, if you can think of one off the top of your head? <laughs> so I'm not sure that I was always very good at this myself during my PhD, but I think that it's really important to always have a work-life balance as much as you can, especially when you're in an area where you're sat at the computer for most of your day. I think it's really important to get out and do other things that you enjoy away from science so that you can be at your best when you're at work. I agree. And if you couldn't be a scientist, what would you be? So I actually have um, another passion away from science, which is horses. Um, they're actually my um, escape um, from from work. They give me an opportunity to get fresh air, no matter what the weather is here in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> Forces me to get exercise every day um, away from the computer. And yep, so if I could, yeah, in an ideal world, it'd be nice to be a professional equestrian rider. But it's quite different from my (laughs) daily job. (laughs) A lot of technical skill. (laughs) And so all that's left is to thank you very much for being on the podcast. 
Thank you. Thanks for listening to the very first episode of The Review. And thank you to Seema for joining us for this episode. You can follow her on Twitter at SeemaVirusEpi. If you have any feedback or suggestions for our new series, you can email us at cvrcontagiousthinking at gmail.com or tweet us at cvrblog. You can find our regular podcast content at cvrblog.myportfolio.com.